This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Russia is making gains in its war with Ukraine, and the West is considering its response. France has not ruled out sending troops to Ukraine, but the idea has been rejected by its allies. So is the West's existing support enough for Kyiv? And what else might it need to face Russia? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In Kyiv, we have Peter Zalmiev. He's the executive director of the Eurasia Democracy Initiative. In Brussels, Oana Lunjescu is a former principal spokesperson for NATO. She's currently a distinguished fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. And in London, we have Alexander Claxon. He's the founder of Global Political Insight and provides political and communications advice to governments with expertise on Russia and Central Asia. It's really great to have you all on Inside Story with us today. Thanks for your time. I want to start with, with the state of play on the ground as it is right now. It felt for some time to observers, even senior military commanders, that we were in a bit of a stalemate between Ukraine and Russia. But it feels like in the last couple of weeks, perhaps month or so, that Russia has obtained the upper hand. O- Owana, would you say that's fair? Look, I think this is a very difficult moment uh, on the front lines uh, in Ukraine. However, we should not forget uh, that Ukraine has maintained its uh, sovereignty, which is exactly uh, what uh, Russia has attacked. Uh, Ukraine has also managed to uh, reclaim about 50 percent of uh, the territory uh, occupied by Russia. And importantly, Ukraine has managed uh, to set up uh, the grain corridor going through the Black Sea so that it continues to export uh, its its grains to the rest of the world. So yes, uh, this is a difficult time and clearly it's going to be a difficult year, uh, but uh, uh, Ukraine has shown uh, that uh, uh, it, it can hold its own uh, and that's why we have to continue supporting Ukraine uh, much faster. Oana, you use the phrase difficult time. Alexander, let me bring you in here, because I wonder if the narrative is very different in Moscow, especially with the loss of Avdiivka. Is Russia feeling like it's taking charge? Yes, they will be feeling that at the moment for several reasons. Well, first of all, of course, as you mentioned, it's the successes on the battleground. The second reason is that the sanctions that have been put against Russia are not having the effect that the West wanted. Russia has essentially turned its economy into a war economy, which means it's able to produce 
more military equipment and ammunition than Ukraine can produce and even that the West can provide to Ukraine. So they feel quite comfortable uh, going forward uh, with, this, uh, with this war. And thirdly, uh, you have to say that the West at the moment looks quite indecisive, which is perhaps giving the Kremlin also a bit of confidence. We're seeing the, let's say, the disparity in messaging within the European Union. Of course, for example, just recently Macron said that uh, they're open to having NATO troops on the ground in Ukraine. Then other members of the EU essentially said, no, we're not looking at that. So there seems to be a bit of a division uh, in the West right now, which I do think is giving Russia quite a bit of confidence going forward. I want to come back to some of those divisions and look at them in depth. But, Peter, just picking up on something that Alexander said there in terms of the availability of weapons and artillery, Ukrainian officials, senior ones, have said that they wouldn't have had to have withdrawn from Avdiivka if they had enough artillery to defend it. So the delays that we're seeing in terms of Western support arriving in Kyiv or, or in Ukraine on the front lines, that's costing territory, it's costing lives. How's that going over, Peter? Well, indeed, this is a stark study in contrasts um, that we're seeing. You know, on the one hand, uh, you know, the West uh, is not able to overcome what essentially is a, um, you know, a dilemma of a, a collective action, a collective action problem where there's bickering in U.S. Congress and Donald Trump blocking continued aid to Ukraine. Uh, President Macron saying one thing, others are... are then rushing to say, no, there's going to be no boots on the ground, which is like, why rush? That's my question. Why rush and reassure Putin that there's going to be no boots on the ground? There's such a thing as strategic ambiguity. And Russians are using it all the way, and Europeans are simply not using it. And I just don't understand why. Even if they don't intend to send boots on the ground, leaving it as a matter of strategic ambiguity is a good policy. And on the uh, other hand, we're seeing, uh, you know, how Russia's uh, essentially fifth columnists, such as Hungary and uh, Slovakia, are actually, you know, making life diff uh, difficult both uh, in the EU and in NATO when it comes to the consensus on Ukraine. And finally, the provision of weaponry. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you, once again, you have this indecisive uh, West. Europe is only now waking up to the potential reality they may have to do without U.S. security umbrella, and they have to soon start ratcheting you know, producing much more weapons than they ever did. They've promised Ukraine a certain number. They're not delivering even half. Uh, hopefully, by March, we'll have 500,000. But we're not, you know, holding our breath. On the other hand, Russia is not only producing up to 2 million artillery shells per year. It's receiving millions from North Korea. It's stepped up its security uh, um, cooperation with Iran. Once again, I think the West has to really wake up to the reality of what's happening. Uh, we will see further territorial losses by Ukraine if they don't. I want to let me ask you the question that, that Peter then has just posed. You're sitting in Brussels. Why aren't leaders in European capitals wanting to use strategic ambiguity? Is there a real fear of, of further escalation? Look, uh, the uh, missions that NATO had from the start uh, of, uh, of, of, this, uh, of this crisis uh, of, of Russia's full-fledged invasion of Ukraine was, on the one hand, to continue supporting Ukraine's self-defense, which is a right uh, that Ukraine has uh, under the United Nations Charter. It is defending its own territory, sovereignty, uh, against an invasion 
uh, an unprovoked invasion by Russia. So uh, actually every UN member has the obligation to support Ukraine's right of self-defense. The other mission that NATO had, the other aim, was to prevent escalation uh, to NATO territory. Uh, and uh, that is uh, clearly because NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO does not uh, want an even bigger conflict uh, across uh, Europe. So uh, that, is, that has been the policy from the start, agreed by all uh, allies. And um, I would dispute uh, some, some of the points uh, uh, made uh, by, uh, by Alexander and Peter. I think we have actually seen uh, unprecedented unity, unprecedented support uh, from, uh, from the start uh, from both the United States, Canada, uh, European uh, allies and many others uh, around the world. Uh, so the support that has been uh, provided to Ukraine uh, has been unprecedented, the unity has been unprecedented, but of course this is something uh, that uh, national governments have to work, work on every day and we see and that is a fact that uh, Russia is getting a lot of ammunition, a lot of drones, a lot of other support uh, from fellow autocracies around the world, in particular North Korea and Iran. So it's absolutely key that uh, uh, democracies uh, also step up. And that is, in fact, what's been happening. Uh, Countries in, in NATO are investing much more in, in their defense than, than they did even a couple of years ago. 18 uh, out of uh, 31 NATO allies are investing uh, around or either two or more than 2% of GDP on defense. They have been taking measure to increase uh, their defense production, their ammunition production, but of course it's not fast enough. It is harder in democracies to take this sort of decision than it is in dictatorships. That's also a fact. Uh, Oana, you're talking there about restrictions or, or constraints on, on how much can be sent. It also feels like national governments, as you mentioned, have been making individual decisions based on, on their own national interests. So Germany, for instance, I know they've been mulling over the idea of sending their, their Taurus long-range missiles. That's been really contentious for them. They, if I recall correctly, were, were not very keen to send tanks until the US also sent tanks. They're concerned, clearly, about escalation. Germany doesn't want a, a war with Russia, but Alexandra, I've been Nobody wondering did. about. Sure, I've been wondering about this slow escalation, though. We've seen initially Germany said they were going to only send helmets, and then they sent tanks. Now there's talk about long-range missiles. How is this slow escalation in terms of the sophistication of weapons being sent to Ukraine? How's that being viewed in Moscow? Well, again, as I just mentioned before, it is viewed as a sort of weakness uh, by the West. Um, you see, from the Kremlin's point of view, this war is essentially life or death. It is life or death for Putin in many ways. If he loses this war, uh, well, there will be major consequences for him and his regime. And therefore, uh, the Kremlin is, uh, uh, is ready to go all out. We don't see uh, the same, uh, let's say, the same decisiveness uh, from the West. And the more this war drags on, the harder it's going to be for the West uh, to, to continue to provide that sort of support that they did provide uh, at the very beginning. And I do agree with other guests that initially the, the support was indeed substantial. But the more the war drags on, the more I think there will be a, uh, an unfortunate realization 
that Ukraine will not be able to take back the lands that, um, that Russia currently uh, controls. Uh, it's not a popular uh, narrative. It's one that's not uh, being actively discussed in, uh, in Western circles. But uh, Russia has a very uh, deep and significant defensive lines um, in the territory that it's gained, uh, conquered so far. And uh, Ukraine will indeed struggle to get that back. They, so they just to be counter, sorry, Alexandra, yeah. I just want to, to clarify something you said earlier. In terms of what sure. the West is sending to Ukraine, it's been slow, certainly, but we have seen an escalation mm -hmm. in sophistication, right? So if Russia yes. didn't view tanks as an escalation, will they view long-range missiles as an escalation? And where does that end? Is then the line, say, boots on the ground, Western boots on the ground? Well, I think the boots on the ground will be a significant uh, escalation, and that's what exactly what the what the Kremlin said. Now, where where the where that red line is, it, it's difficult to say. I think uh, when the war initially started, the Kremlin did put forward many red lines, which have been crossed by by the West by now, and we we haven't really seen um, a significant response uh, from the from the Kremlin in that regard. Um, nevertheless, I think by by sending uh, long-range missiles and so on. Uh, again, it, it, it might help in the short term, but what, what does the West do once these uh, missiles run out? Uh, do they continue sending them indefinitely? There, there is no, you mm -hmm. know, there is, is simply no possibility of sure. doing that. And so I think the Russia would feel that in the long term they have the upper hand. Peter, I see you really want to come in there. Please, please jump in. Yeah. I think NATO allies in the whole G7 the whole G7 have made clear that they will continue to support Ukraine uh, for as long as it takes. Uh, and President Macron actually said, and whatever it takes. And I think that's a very important message because uh, for Russia, yeah, maybe it is existential uh, for Putin, but this is a war of choice that Russia and Putin himself launched. They were not attacked. This is a war of aggression. It's an illegal war of aggression. So it's absolutely important that uh, uh, we continue to support Ukraine because it's defending its independence and its uh, uh, territorial integrity. Mm -hmm. And these are fundamental principles. So I don't agree uh, that uh, we will be running out of ammunition. Actually, what you are seeing uh, is a continual ramping up uh, of uh, defense capabilities, uh, of industrial capabilities. Uh, NATO uh, has a defense industrial action plan, uh, which it la launched uh, last year. There are contracts uh, uh, being made uh, continuously for more 155 millimeter ammunition uh, for Patriot missiles. And these are both to defend NATO allies, but also to continue to support Ukraine. I and, agree and that I it's not also am hearing France. now that, that France is saying it's that they're now open to buying outside of Europe potentially, which opens up a, a huge, a huge market. Mm. Uh, Peter, I, I know you've been wanting to, to jump in for a while. Please, please go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I just want to say when we talk about escalation and, and Putin's red lines, I think it, they've already thrown everything they have at Ukraine short of and nuclear weapons. They've blown up our Kakhovka water dam. They've terrorized civilians by the indiscriminate shelling. So really, it boils down to this logic that if you have nuclear weapons, then the, all, all the other countries have to just basically cede whatever territory the nuclear uh, powered uh, uh, country wants. And that is actually uh, a dead end, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, national, international security. And, you know, once again, we're not talking about 
scaling down, you know, expectations uh, of Ukraine's return to its 1991 borders. I will tell you one thing. It's not the official policy yet, but I think there is realization in Ukraine it's not going to happen anytime soon. Just to keep the territory, just to keep Ukraine's sovereignty at this point will require ratchet, you know, significantly increased the levels of support and production of weapons. Vladimir Putin has said just in December that he remains true to his goal of denazification, demilitarization of Ukraine, its neutral status. Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, has said that Kiev by rights should be a Russian city. Odessa should be a Russian city. You have to really listen to what these folks are saying in their telegram channels, etc., they have not given up on their maximal goal of actually seeing Ukraine disappear at a, as a sovereign state. I want to take a quick look at this point at the contributions that we've been seeing from, from different countries. Obviously, Western powers, as we've been talking about, have been heavily supporting Ukraine's war effort. Let's look at some of those numbers. Now, Kyiv's received around $270 billion worth of aid, including military, financial and humanitarian support. The biggest donor is the United States. It's given more than $75 billion over the past two years. And a new aid package, as we've been talking about, worth around $60 billion, is, though, currently stalled in U.S. Congress. Western powers have also given Ukraine advanced weaponry, including tanks, fighter jets and anti-aircraft weapons. Looking at European contributions, Germany, that was, what, more than $19 billion worth, UK, $9.8 billion. France, I was interested to see, is $686 million. So it's pretty bold of Macron to talk about needing to do more when they're that far behind in contributions, isn't it, Oana? Well, uh, according to the Kiel Institute, uh, which is tracking uh, the, the public contributions, because, of course, some of the contributions may not uh, always be public, um, indeed, uh, France is in 14th uh, place after, uh, indeed, as you said, uh, the United States, uh, Germany, uh, which is the biggest European contributor, the UK, Poland, many, uh, many others. Um, so everybody is, is contributing, but uh, I fully agree that everybody needs to do more because uh, this is an existential moment for Ukraine, uh, but also for those around the world uh, that uh, don't want to see an imperial project. That is what Russia actually has. Um, as, uh, as Peter was saying, this is about destroying the sovereignty and territorial integrity, annihilating a whole country, denying the identity of a whole people. This is an imperial project which, if it succeeds, uh, will send uh, the wrong message uh, to other uh, big countries around the world that uh, think that they can use force to achieve their goals. Well, let me then turn this back to Alexander, because we're talking about ramping up support here from Western allies over a relatively long period of time, it seems. From my interviews, Alexander, with senior Russian officials, it sounds like Moscow already feels that it's at war with NATO, that the whole of NATO. What difference would, would boots on the ground, for example, made if they already think that they're at war with the West? Well, I think um, having boots on the ground would, would indeed be a, a significant escalation because if, if, um, if suddenly we're seeing deaths among uh, NATO soldiers, uh, that does raise the question as to whether indeed Russia is in fact uh, in a direct conflict with NATO. Whilst Russia has been saying at the moment that, of course, they are fighting NATO, it's kind of been indirectly, you know, NATO has been providing 
military support, training, financial support, but it hasn't been a Russian soldier versus a, a NATO soldier. Uh, having boots on the ground would indeed uh, change that. And I should add as well that uh, if indeed uh, NATO troops uh, joined the, the conflict directly, uh, we would see uh, perhaps an increased rhetoric from Russia again. I think Peter mentioned before uh, the potential use of nuclear weapons. Now, I'm not saying that Russia would use nuclear weapons if NATO put their boots on the ground. However, as I mentioned before, this conflict is a, is a must-win uh, for Russia. And if, if NATO troops did, in fact, have a positive effect for Ukraine, we would probably see the, the nuclear rhetoric come back again from the Kremlin. Uh Peter, let me ask you, sorry, I wanna, I'll come to you in just a second because I, I do want to ask about a different kind of support as well and, and whether that's been making a, a difference to Russia and, and, and its perceptions of Ukraine and the West. Symbolic support. Uh, NATO's chief, what, just a, a few days ago, was saying that it's inevitable that, that Ukraine will join the alliance. Um, we know there's an EU bid. I know Ursula von der Leyen seems to keep changing and flip-flopping on that timeline, but that's obviously also in the works. Does any of that change anything, Ukraine becoming a member of NATO or the EU, Peter? Well, I, I think that even like even if it's, it's still a remote uh, eventuality, we're talking about probably conservatively 10 years for each um, uh, prospect. Uh, this is an incredible, like you said, symbolic uh, reassurance and help uh, to Ukraine. Uh, it's been very difficult uh, this last uh, year, and it's getting even more difficult, especially in the absence of a decision uh, by the U.S. Congress, in many ways much more difficult than last year. Remember, when Russia was targeting our you know, electrical infrastructure, we were out of uh, uh, you know, power. We didn't, you know, for days we went without electricity and sometimes access to water. But then we had the sympathy and support by the entire world. And that seems to have been slipping, obviously. Russians have cast their nets wide. They have, they have their agents on the ground trying to influence politics in, uh, in the EU on the eve of European uh, parliamentary elections in June. They've obviously uh, seemingly gotten hold of the soul of the Republican Party of the United States of America. Uh, so uh, to have this as a uh, eventual sort of uh, um, icing on this cake, this promise of NATO membership, EU, first of all, that is the only true guarantee of Ukraine ever and finally breaking away with the so-called Ruski Mir, the Russian world, and all that it entails, continuous aggression, uh, uh, ignoring of uh, basic uh, human rights standards, etc. cetera. Uh, but it will also be a shot in the arm of Ukrainians who are you know, fighting, dying by the thousands uh, every week, every month. Uh, you know, without that, I think Ukraine would uh, sink into, uh, you know, uh, nihilist right wing or left wing, mm -hmm. you name it, extreme politics. And I, I would not rule out a return of sort of cer certain pro-Russian and anti-Western elements. You cannot take for granted Ukraine's continued uh, pro-Western, mm -hmm. pro-European stance. So this is a very, very delicate moment. Oana, are you concerned at all about war fatigue at the moment in Western capitals, particularly as we also now hear Republican senators in the U.S., for instance, now, they're talking about some kind of long-term negotiated settlement rather than actually saying that Ukraine might win this war? 
Look, I think it's uh, this is a debate uh, in our democratic countries, uh, and I think uh, people realize that it's in our strategic interest to continue supporting uh, Ukraine. Uh, and uh, NATO allies are doing uh, everything they can to do that. But let me just sort of pick on, on some of the points that we heard that about boots on the ground. Now, the people who have boots on the ground in Ukraine are the Russians, and they should pull them out, because that is an illegal war of aggression. Uh, there's been no discussion about NATO boots on the ground. President Macron did not say that. He did not refer to NATO boots on the ground. Uh, he referred to the possibility of maybe mm -hmm. uh, forces, which his foreign minister uh, then uh, clarified is about non-combatant non forces, uh, troops, perhaps uh, military advisors, to help with demining uh, or cyber defense. So I think that we should put that to, to, to bed. Mm -hmm. The other thing is um, uh, about this idea of Russia's existential war. I really must push back on that. This is not an existential war. Russia is the biggest country in the whole world. Russia should stop uh, trying to take other people's territory. It does not belong to Russia. It does not Needed. Russia could be a peaceful, democratic country, but clearly Russia wants war. This is not an existential mm -hmm. war, it's a war of choice. Well, let me throw that back then to Alexander. In terms of, of going forward, where does Russia see this ending? And what kind of strategic calculations is it making looking at this year, especially with a US election on the horizon? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me clarify that I do believe this is an existential war for Putin. It might not be an existential war for the Russian people. We must make a difference between that. Putin is not the Russian people. The Russian people are not Putin. But for Putin, this is a must-win war. Uh, he's essentially gone all in. If he loses uh, the territory that Russia has conquered, that would have significant consequences for him. Uh, therefore, he's, he's not able to back down at the moment. Uh, in terms of the, um, the strategy and the, the, you mentioned the negotiated settlement, I think it's almost inevitable that this conflict will end through a diplomatic discussion mm -hmm. and some kind of an agreement. Um, it's, it's clear that uh, Russia will not give up the, the land that is uh, taken illegally uh, thus far. Um, it might not be able to gain much more land going forward, so we may end up in some kind of a frozen conflict where essentially both sides, sometimes one side gains a bit more, sometimes the mm -hmm. other side pushes back. Uh, we will eventually reach a frozen conflict. I think for Russia, their aim is to keep the, the territories, the republics mm -hmm. uh, that they have annexed uh, illegally. Uh, well, that, for them, is the minimum. Uh, of course, ideally, well, we'll, they would we'll want to take care. That's not to possible. See, yeah. we'll have to, I'm afraid we'll have to leave our discussion there, but we'll certainly see where those discussions do end up if they do indeed take place. Um, thank you, in the meantime, to all of our guests, Peter Zalmayev, Oana Lunjescu, and Alexander Klaxon. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Fintan Monahan, Veronica Pedrosa, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani, and the program was edited by Romola Asuncion, Zain Abada, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in again on Thursday for our next one. Coming up on The Take, a message of extreme political protest over Israel's war on Gaza. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.